0: I want to just ask you to bear with me this morning. I am on lots of drugs. Um, not the bad kind. Um, I, uh, my allergies are at an all-time uh, high this, the past couple days. And so uh, if I say anything that sounds weird or strange, um, you know, I'm not a heretic, I, t- I promise. Just uh, Just hopped up on lots of medication. So this morning, as we come to our text, we'll be in Luke chapter 16, 14 through 18. Think about your favorite TV shows or movies, maybe your favorite book. How many of them have characters that have two lives or double lives? You know, I remember um, when my kids were young, they liked uh, a show called Super Why, right, where the little kids, they transform into these superheroes and go out and and help people, or Phineas and Ferb, where the pet, Perry the platypus, is actually a secret agent. Who knew, you know? Um, Or how about our superheroes, right? Many superheroes live a double life. Peter Parker, Clark Kent, Bruce Wayne. Some favorite movie and TV show characters like Mulan, or Don Diego de la Vega, better known as Zorro. These characters live a double life. They live as a secret part of their life that, if known, would put them and others in danger. These characters and many more grab our imaginations, and we enjoy being entertained in some part because I think that we like to think about what it would be like to have a secret identity. But as we know, it's not all cool gadgets and superpowers these characters often live with a lot of emotional and relational turmoil. They feel they must live a disintegrated life, one where no one or very few know who they truly are. And the thing is, you don't really have to be a superhero to live a disintegrated life. In fact, some of us live that way, at least in part, nearly every day. We may be one person at school or at work, Another person with this group of friends versus that group of friends, and another at home. And some of that is natural, right? One group of friends, you have a, a particular um, uh, event or a shared experience where the other group of friends doesn't have. Or at home, you're a brother or sister or mom and dad, something that you really can't fully be in any other context. But in our disintegrated lives, It can also be something that we're very conscious of. And we can actually work hard at times to make sure others don't know who we truly are. This morning, Jesus is calling out our double or disintegrated lives. He's calling us out of that and into an integrated life in Him, in His kingdom. So let's read Luke chapter 16, verses 14-14 through 18. The Pharisees were lovers of money, heard all these things, the parables that Jesus has just told, and they ridiculed him and said to him, and he said to them, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. The law and the prophets were until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached and everyone forces his way into it. But it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, your word made flesh in the person and work of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Lord, we pray that as we come to your word this morning, that you give us the eyes that Jesus says we need, the ears that he says we need to hear your word. Lord, may it not only transform us, but Lord, may we be conformed to your word, the living word, Jesus Christ. In his name we pray, amen. So we continue our series called C- Certainty in Christ through the Gospel of Luke. And last week we are in Luke chapter 16 verses 1 through 13. One of the, the parable kind of known as the parable of the dishonest steward. It's one of the more difficult parables that Jesus tells to understand what's happening in the story The teaching, we said, is pretty clear, right? It's to be generous and responsible with your resources. But how the parable gets us there is often not agreed upon. And one of the questions the parable causes us to ask is, do we use our wealth generously and responsibly? What we saw from the text was that we are to use our resources, particularly our money, in such a way that has others appreciate you for your exercise of stewardship, your kindness, and generosity. Secondly, we saw that disciples should apply themselves to honor and serve God by their use of resources. They should think through their actions, both short and long-term. And finally, the money we think we own is not actually ours. It's always what we have from God, and we are no more than stewards of it. We should use it in ways that welcome people into the blessings of the kingdom of God. But most importantly, as important as those applications are, most importantly what we learned is the mercy of the Lord. Right, the main purpose of the parable is actually to show the mercy of the owner, of the master. The true purpose of the miracle is to reveal the Lord's mercy. The servant's entire plan, the steward's entire plan, is based on the assumption that the master, the Lord, is an honorable man who will respond in mercy just as he has done in the past. And the steward was commended because he chose to serve his Lord, who he trusted would be merciful. This morning, we come to a few verses that almost seem out of place between the parable of the dishonest steward, which we just rehashed, and the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, which we'll come to next week. But the connection with the previous should become obvious in a minute, and the connection with the latter is that we'll be set up from Jesus' teaching here in these few verses to better understand what Jesus is teaching us in the parable to come about the connection with this life and the life to come. And the, the connecting piece of, this, of our text this morning is verse 13 from last week. Right? Jesus ends that passage by saying, No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. right our the exclusive loyalty Jesus commands cannot be shared right this is exclusive loyalty to God you're either going to serve him or you're going to serve something else our money our whole lives are to be fully devoted to God this is the integrated life in the kingdom and so as we come to our text today, with that as the kind of the, the, the linchpin between what we saw last week and what we see this week, the question we have to ask ourselves from the text is, does Jesus have your exclusive loyalty? Does Jesus have your exclusive loyalty? If you're here this morning, you're not a follower of Jesus. The answer to that question is an easy one to answer. But let me invite you into the kingdom through a relationship with Jesus, the one who knows you, everything good and bad, and has come to seek and to save you. This is the Jesus who wants you to come, welcomes you into his kingdom. If you are a follower of Jesus this morning, the answer to that same question isn't so easy. Like the father previously in Luke Who confessed his belief before Jesus when he was asking Jesus to come and to heal his daughter? I believe, Jesus. Help my unbelief. Those of us who follow Jesus must also say to a question like this Jesus, I am loyal. Help my disloyalty. Our lives are a constant struggle to live exclusively for Jesus, to have fully integrated lives. And what we see in our text is that because Jesus is the good news of the kingdom, we can live integrated lives. Because Jesus is the good news of the kingdom, we can live integrated lives. And we'll see first that Jesus shows us what a disintegrated life looks like, and then he'll show us what integrated life looks like. Disintegrated lives, uh, we see that in verses 14 and 15. Luke tells us that the, that the audience that Jesus is teaching has switched from the disciples to the Pharisees, right? In the previous parable about the dishonest steward, Jesus was specifically speaking to the disciples. The audience has changed now. and it's, He is specifically speaking to the Pharisees. And Jesus uses the lives of the Pharisees to show us our own disintegrated lives. What do I mean by that? Well, remember the Pharisees, right? We often, rightly so, think, oh, man, they're, the, they're kind of, you know, we don't want to be like them. They, they were, they, they were you know, cruel and mean to Jesus. They didn't understand who he was and what he was doing. That's very, very true. But they were also the religious conservatives of their day, right? They held to biblical values. They wanted people to live according to those biblical values. They desired their nation to turn back to God. And yet Jesus shows us throughout Luke and particularly here that their zeal for the things of God was not as it might seem. And we see that because they scoff at Jesus, right? It said, Luke tells us that the Pharisees who were lovers of money heard these things and they ridiculed him or scoffed at him. And they scoff at him, they ridiculed Jesus because they think that Jesus is not in touch with what they would call the reality of the world, right? Jesus just doesn't understand how things in the real world, real world work. Say that ten times fast, right? All of these parables that Jesus have, has told us—the lost coin, the lost sheep, the lost coin, the lost son—the parable of the dishonest steward—they all have a very different way of understanding how the world works, how the kingdom of God works, to the way the Pharisees understand it, right? And they scoff at Jesus. They they. They ridicule him because they're thinking, Jesus, you don't get it. You don't understand how things in the real world work. Jesus gets it, but we often don't, just like the Pharisees. Right? Like the Pharisees, we sometimes feel like we have to work the system, so to speak, to make life work. The Pharisees outwardly appeared righteous, but inwardly, Jesus says, their hearts are known by God, meaning God knows what's really going on inside, guys. He knows. No matter what it looks like on the outside, no matter how you've been able to make everything look good and neat and nice, And religious, God knows what's going on on the inside, so it's better to stop playing and know, truly know this God. Right? Their outward appearance of righteousness is earned by how they are using their possessions, their resources Right? What's interesting is that Jesus is showing us a bit of a juxtaposition here. He's just told us that we were to use our resources right, for the kingdom in the parable of the dishonest steward. But what he's showing the Pharisees and us is that we can use our possessions, we can use the wealth, the money, whatever the resources that we have in ways that look good, but in reality, they are known by God for what they are, right? Unlike the unrighteous steward whose heart was dependent on the mercy of his master, the Pharisees' hearts are dedicated toward money and the approval of man. So Jesus is calling them and calling us out of this disintegrated life, right? He goes on in verse 15, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts for what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God, right? Jesus is saying that the values of this world are outside of the values of the kingdom of God. Right, he's not saying that there's sometimes that they just don't line up. Rather, the value system of this world is, is Jesus used as Jesus uses, an abomination in the sight of God. Right, in the parables that Jesus has told, he is helping us to understand the value system of the kingdom. Which is very different than the value system. Of the world. And so Jesus is showing them and us that hypocrisy and misuse of possessions is an alternate way into the kingdom, one that ends in death. This stands outside of God's way of righteousness, which Jesus says was from the beginning in the Old Testament and culminates in Himself. It's the only way into God's kingdom is through him. But the Pharisees scoff and ridicule him for that. And if we're honest with ourselves, I think we can all see the Pharisee in us. Don't get me wrong. I don't like to think of how I'm a Pharisee. Just as I'm sure you don't like that either. But there's a a little bit and sometimes a lot of Pharisee in all of us. In one moment, we dream of this beautifully caring and hope-filled kingdom that Jesus describes in the next. We scoff because if we seek first his kingdom, if we follow the way of Jesus, humility, kindness, generosity, mercy, and grace we're afraid that we'll find that, what we've, that we've not reached our goals, that we've not found our truth or that the joke is on us. And yet Jesus patiently and graciously calls us to leave our other loves and come more and more into a vital, exclusive and integrated relationship with him. You see, we must repent of our hypocrisy and love of money as a way into the kingdom and confess before the world that there is only one way into the kingdom, and that is through Jesus. Unfortunately, confessing that there is only one way into the kingdom through Jesus was a bridge too far for many of the Pharisees, as well as many today even those who claim to be Christians. It's a bridge too far to believe that Jesus is the only way. Unfortunately, many want to believe that there has to be some other way. Some way that doesn't And our minds cost us so much to give up all that we hold so dearly in our lives. And yet Jesus says, when we give those things up, that's when we truly know life and freedom in him. When we truly have integrated lives, verses 16 through 18 He goes on to say the law and the prophets were until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached and everyone forces his way into it. The law and the prophets, Jesus is saying, point to the good news of the kingdom. There is no disconnection between the law and the prophets. And we know this because Jesus in verse 17 goes on to say, but it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot from the law to become void. Right, Not one little dot or jot or tittle as it can be translated. A little mark that differentiates between one letter in the Hebrew alphabet to another. That's what Jesus is referring to. And he's saying that through the preparation of John and now the teaching of Jesus, the good news of the kingdom is clear. What may have not been so clear in the past is now crystal clear in Jesus. And yet what was not so clear in the past will not pass away, even as heaven and earth. It'd be easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. And so Jesus is reminding us that this good news was was proclaimed in the past through the law and the prophets and it's fulfilled in him. In this this verse, there is a strange phrase at the end of verse 16, and everyone forces his way into it. What in the world does Jesus mean there? We cannot force our way into the kingdom. Right? We cannot force our way into the kingdom of God. The Pharisees have tried. Many of us have tried we cannot force our way into the kingdom. What Jesus is getting at here is it's more of a, a violent entrance. It is more of a, a, a violence that will happen as we enter the kingdom. And the violence not in terms of like bloodshed. But violence in the sense that everyone who depends on possessions and hypocrisy as a way into the kingdom is being called to a violent break. To be called to a violent break from those means and enter into Jesus' kingdom through faith in His grace and mercy alone. Right? For many, that seems counterintuitive. Right? It seems like they are forcing their way in through this weird backwards type of way. Right? I should be able, I should have to earn my way in. I should have to live in such a way that gets me in. I should need to get it all cleaned up and together before I can come in. But Jesus is saying No. It's not that way. Jesus is the only way into the kingdom. And by following Jesus, there is a sense of violence that comes. It's a violent break of all that we've held to so dearly before. It is through grace and mercy alone that we come into the kingdom. Jesus goes on in verse 17 to reiterate that his ministry is the fulfillment of the Old Testament and the key to eternity, right? The Pharisees and their hypocrisy have opted for another way of reading the Old Testament and trying to enter the kingdom, again, by force. But Jesus says his way is the only way. It's the way pointed to by the law and the prophets of the Old Testament. It is the way that has always been the way. If you had eyes to see and ears to hear. It was through faith in the God of Israel. Faith in the God of Israel who has shown himself is God the son in the person of Jesus Christ. This is the way into the kingdom. It has never been about forceful entry. It's never been about trying to make a perfect report card. It's never been about what other people think of you and how you look religious or have it all together to them. And then Jesus seemingly kind of brings out of nowhere marriage and divorce in verse 18. Jesus uses marriage as an example of how the law and the prophets have not passed away, but also to sh- once again show the disintegration in our lives. And for as zealous as the Pharisees were for God's law, they had a low view of marriage. And so Jesus brings up this Old Testament law of interpreting the Old Testament law on marriage and divorce. to confront them and us with how integrated lives view the kingdom of God. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery, and he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. Jesus uses marriage as an example of how the law and the prophets have not passed away. But also to once again show this disintegration of our lives. A believer's attitude toward marriage, he's saying, is also determine the light of the good news of the kingdom. Love for God and commitment towards his kingdom is to be such that marriage is not viewed from the perspective of what should marriage do for me, but rather how can I practice the love of God and love for my neighbor spouse in this marriage? But there is something else being expressed here as well. Think about how Israel was often described by the prophets of the Old Testament as the bride of God. And how was the unfaithfulness of Israel often described in the Old Testament? It was often likened to adultery or breaking of the marriage vows. Jesus is reminding us of the kind of relationship we have with him, right? Marriage is to be this picture of Christ and his church, of God and his people. And Jesus is reminding us of the kind of relationship we have with him, one that is to be as lasting and as strong as marriage was meant to be. And it reminds us also The Old Testament prophet Hosea, who married a prostitute to show God's unending love to his people, who repeatedly cheated on him with other gods. In Jesus, we have the perfect bridegroom, the one who, while we were still prostitutes, still sinners, still enemies of God, gave himself fully for us and to us. Who lived the perfect, integrated life, an exclusive loyalty to his heavenly Father, that we might, through faith in him, by the power of the Holy Spirit, live an integrated life in Jesus. This is the good news of the gospel, right? That even as we stumble to live an integrated life, even as we say to Jesus, I am loyal, help my disloyalty. Jesus is the perfect bridegroom. He is the one who will never divorce us. He is the one who is committed to us forever and ever and ever. He is the one who lived this integrated life fully that we might in him by the power of the Holy Spirit live it for him and in him. Putting this teaching between these parables seeks to prepare us for eternity. And we must now experience a repentance and faith that leads us to renounce the lordship of possessions for the lordship of Christ. Kingdom, the kingdom of Christ calls us to renounce divided loyalties, to have idolatries revealed since God hates them, and to live in obedience to reflect an integrated life. The connection between possessions and the kingdom should now be clear. As lovers of money, the Pharisees had made possessions an idol, and they had turned from God by committing adultery and serving money instead of God. In John's preaching and baptism and Jesus preaching the good news of the kingdom of God, they were given the opportunity to in this critical time, as Luke says in in chapter twelve, to grasp in faith the way of life. But instead they scoffed at the king of the kingdom and clung even more tightly to their ways. Brothers and sisters, may we examine ourselves in this critical time and find the answer not in ourselves, but in faith in Jesus alone, the one who loves us, the one who is the perfect and better bridegroom, the one who will not leave us or forsake us, the one who gave himself up for us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for Jesus, that he is the ultimate best bridegroom. Lord, that he is the one who will never leave us or forsake us. Lord, we have experienced that through the work of your Holy Spirit. Until your Son comes again, Lord, we pray that you would help us by your Holy Spirit, who you've given us to walk in newness of life, to live this integrated life. The one that lives in light of the glory and hope of the kingdom lives because Jesus lives in us. Lord, we pray this in the powerful and precious name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen.